Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick. I am one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible uh, with you, go ahead and turn it to the book of Philippians. That's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one around your seat somewhere. Uh, you can grab that. If, if uh, You can always turn, turn to Philippians there. If you don't own a Bible, that's yours. You just take that one home with you. We will replace it. Uh, we want you to have that. We think it's important. Um, so we are, most of you know this, but for those of you who don't, we are in the middle of, like right in the middle, in fact, maybe, maybe a little past middle at this point, but pretty close to the middle of a series we're doing called Reimagine. And, and in so doing, what we're trying to do is like uh, kind of refresh ourselves on what this is that we're doing here. This is church thing. What are we doing? And we spent some time looking at the, the mission of the church, how that, what we're supposed to, what, what God calls us to do and to be. And then uh, we spent a few weeks looking at kind of what the church as a kind of an organization does, like what do we, what, what's our corporate life like? And and now we're in the second week of looking at what leadership looks like in the church. We're doing specifically, like, why talk about leadership? It's kind of, bleh. well, we're doing that because, and if we're being honest, and if you're here this morning and church is not your thing, it's probable that one of the reasons it's not your thing is because of church leadership, right? I mean, let's be honest, you don't have to turn really far in your newsfeed, flip really far in your newsfeed to find some examples of it pretty poorly done. There's a lot of confusion. We looked at that last week, right? Like, what, what, what is it that this is, a, what kind of people are supposed to be leaders in the church, right? And we looked at, last week, we looked at the kind of people specifically, like there's supposed to be people of, people of character, that the, the gifts thing, the, the abilities thing, that, that that's there and that can be trained and taught. But fundamentally, what a leader is in Christ's church and the church of Jesus is someone of, of character, the kind of person that's called to lead. This week, <laughs> this week we look at the overall attitude. What's their attitude supposed to be like? Again, man, we're confused on this. Is this supposed to be something that like kind of, I mean, Jesus had a lot to say about this, and we're not going to look specifically at what he said, we're going to look at what he did, but is this just something that, is the attitude one of like, well, it's, you know, my way or the highway? Is it like, um, you know, get in line? Or famously said uh, by, a, well, he's, he's still in church leadership, um, on a podcast that I heard, uh, you know, that there's a this particular church is a bus, and there's tons of bodies behind it. Is that really what this is supposed to be about? Uh, spoiler alert, no, but uh, let's, let's see what that attitude is supposed to be like. So if you'd stand in honor of God's word, we're in Philippians 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 11. And I've reminded us this before, but for many, for many of you in this room, this is a very familiar passage, which, which generally means that you're going to be tempted to check out, right? Just be like, yeah, I know this one. This is fine. God speaks to us in his word, friends, and he's doing so now. <laughs> and so let's hear it as if he's speaking because he is to us right now. So 
If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, open our hearts, open our hearts that we might uh, receive the truth of your word. And with the psalmist, we say, open our eyes that we might see the wonders of your law. Open our ears, in fact, that we might hear with joy your gospel. And Lord, as we lift up Jesus, would you answer your promise to draw all of us, all people to yourself, we ask. You would do all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, If you're familiar at all with with music, you may uh, be familiar with the concept of improvisation. I say music because improv is also like a comedy thing, and I don't mean whose line is it anyway, so it's a completely different, it's a great show, but not what I'm talking about this morning. Musical improvisation is this um, art form in which a musician will so understand the melody that has been written, so grasp it, live it, imbibe it, know it, that that then they can can, um, move around it in a way that is faithful to it. This is important because improv is not simply just making stuff up. Anybody can do that. I mean, most anybody can do that. Improvisation, true musical improvisation, just like improvisation in acting, is incredibly difficult because you have to know what it is that you're improvising around so well that what you produce is faithful to it. It's faithful to it. Some of you are like, some of you love jazz, you might, have, you might know of improv, but if, even if you don't, my guess is, is that everyone in this room, or most everyone in this room, is familiar with the great soundtrack to Charlie Brown's Christmas, right? And you can go a little later and you can hear a great improvisation on O Christmas Tree by the Giraldi Trio. That's true improvisation, right? What does that have to do with what we're talking about this morning? Well, in a sense, that's what this passage is calling us to. It's improv. And and it's really about the church in general, Christians in general. We're going to talk specifically about leaders and leadership and the attitudes of leaders. But it's calling us, and what's interesting about it, and we'll see this a little later, is that a lot of scholars will tell you that what Paul is reciting here, what he's quoting, is a song. 
<laughs> it's a song sung in the early church. And so Paul is calling us to improv- improvise around this song and to live it. Saying, here's your melody. Now go improvise into the world. So this morning we're going to look at this in, in three ways. I know that's shocking to everyone here, but we're going to look at this in three ways. Uh, there is an outline in your, in your uh, worship guide if you, if you uh, like to take notes. If not, just leave it there. But there's so much in this passage that we could we literally spend weeks talking about this, and, and I promise we won't do that. So what we're going to do is take a big picture look at what Paul's trying to accomplish. Let's, let's begin by seeing this foundational question. Look down at verse 1, right? In verse 1 of chapter 2, there is this series of if statements. This series of if statements, you see those? Lay a foundation, is what I would say. They, would lay, they lay a foundation for what's going to come later. Um, in, in, our, in our kind of theological language, if you're more kind of uh, one of our theology nerds, what you would say is that they lay out the indicative, the who you are, that then kind of leads us to the imperative, what you're called to do. But you have to begin, first and foremost, with the indicative, okay? Now, th- this is because, and, and this is really important, Pretty much everything that Paul calls us to in this passage is impossible. It's completely impossible. That's why he asks all of these if questions. The truth is that unless these things that he says first are true, the rest of it, just go ahead and give up. That's why the ifs are so important. So let's look at them. First he says if there's if, 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 therefore, anyone has encouragement in Christ. Now, that word encouragement, there's a bunch of ways you can translate that. But that is uh, Paul kind of bringing to the surface a concept that some of his readers would probably have been familiar with. Because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the same word that's used by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 1 of his kind of work in which he talks about, he, he, uses the, he translates it comfort, or most of the time our Bibles translate it comfort. Does comfort comfort my people? Maybe you've heard that. Messiah, you know, for those of you who are familiar with uh, Handel's Messiah. What that means in, in Isaiah 40 is it's talking about experiencing the forgiveness of sin. It's experiencing God's forgiveness. It's seeing, seeing that offense, understanding what it has done and the weight of it, but also knowing that that has been lifted from you. It's, it's experiencing forgiveness, okay? So if you've experienced that forgiveness, and follows it up, if there's any comfort for love. Now, that, those two words, comfort and encouragement, very, very close. As a matter of fact, in a lot of translations, they're flipped, but it's not that important. But what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to draw out these biblical concepts that are specific, this is how, about being encouraged by the love of God. Okay. In other words, it is understanding our unworthiness of it, but receiving it freely. You've got to get both sides of that. It's not just to understand it and, and receive it, or it's not just to understand your unworthiness of it, it's also to receive it freely. I know some of us struggle with that. I tend to. Right? It's like I understand it, I see I'm unworthy, I have a hard time receiving it freely. It's, he means both. And next he says, if anyone has participation in the Spirit. By the Spirit, Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so again, um, you know, if, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, Christians believe that God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To participate in the Spirit means to have the Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you. 
And lastly, he says, if there's any affection and sympathy. Another way to say that is compassion and mercy. It means God looking on our weakness with love and not scorn. Now, here's the deal. You bring all of those ifs together, pull all of those strings together, and you get one rope. And that one rope is called being a Christian. See, the key to that is that in Christ part of that first one. See, look at that. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, scholars will tell you that that actually, that phrase in Christ is actually meant to modify all of them. It would have gotten redundant. And in Greek, you can just put it in the, in the beginning. And so that's what he does. So it's, you know, if, if you have any comfort in Christ, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if participation in the Spirit in Christ, and compassion and mercy in Christ, all of them are about being in Christ. And so Paul is saying, what I'm about to say is for you if you are a Christian, and if you're not, then understand, like, good luck. That's not the way this is going to work. Do you see this? Listen, maybe, maybe Christianity is new to you, and you're like, I'm not sure what you're talking about, but this doesn't sound like what I've understood Christianity to be. Yeah, I know, um, but it is. All of these things, these main points, these ifs, are all about what Christianity is, because the Bible teaches that all of us are broken, all of us, like all of us from from the, the most morally upstanding to the most uh, visibly broken, that we are all broken, and that by nature we're turned away from God. It's not how God created us. He created us good in the, in the very beginning. That's how we were created, but it's where we are now, that all of us by nature are there. As we're made for a dependent relationship with him, to love him with all that we are, to be loved by him, but we betrayed him. We, we turned away from him, and so that now, ever since that first betrayal, way back in the garden, we are now seeking our independence, wanting our own way by our nature. And Christianity is about God coming and rescuing us from that. And him doing so through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It isn't, let me be clear, it is not that Jesus came to show us that way. It's that he is the way. It's not that Jesus came to give us new rules to follow as if the old ones weren't good enough. It's that he came to be a new and better ruler and to rescue us. He is the way. That's the whole in Christ part, right? We, we place our faith in him and we are forgiven of our sins. That's the encouragement, right? Any encouragement. We're adopted as God's children. That's the comfort of love. We're made new by the Spirit and able to live dependently on him. That's the participation in the Spirit. And, and, and that we have the smile of God as we stumble and struggle because of the brokenness that remains in us. That's the compassion and mercy. That is what it means to be a Christian. It is trusting in Jesus and being gifted these things. Not earning it, but receiving it. You with me? This is important because we can't get to the other attitude stuff until we've made sure that we're where Paul started. That is the foundation of the entire set of command that Paul's about to give. You can't put the cart before the horse. Okay? Now, now let's get to that selfless call. Look down at verse, starting in verse 2. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of court and of one mind. Now, we could parse out all of those sames, but like I said, you could spend weeks on this. We're not going to do that. So in reality, what Paul is calling for here in, the, in verse 2 is unity. And by unity, I mean unity and not uniformity. I know Christians have this reputation of being like mindless automatons, like not uh, like all supposed to say the same thing and be like Ned Flanders, you know, like hi diddly do, and that's, that's what we're supposed to do. But that's, that's not what's going on here. 
Okay? Paul is not calling for uniformity. These are attitude issues. He doesn't mean be mindless automatons. He's just calling for everyone to be on the same page with what he says in verses 3 to 4. Now, let's look down there. Okay? Verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this, and then he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, the, the ESV, which is the translation we're reading, follows most of our English translations. It probably reads that pretty much the same, and, and, and it, it can be translated that way, but it, it makes it sound as if what Paul is saying is, listen, guys, don't just look out for yourselves. Don't just look out for you. Look out for others, too, right? You see that? I mean, literally, you pull that out of there. That's actually not what the original says. The original says, don't look out for you, yourself, but instead, look out for others. Don't look out for your interests, but instead, look out for others. And, and I could go into all the technical reasons why I think that's probably a better way to put this, uh, but, but it's, it's, it's very clear in, in the original. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you are thinking like, okay, so Rick, what this is telling me to do is to be a doormat. I get that, but not at all. And there's a couple of reasons for that, okay? First and foremost, Paul, uh, the early Christian leader who wrote this, is writing this to a church. In other words, a community, a bunch of people. And so I want you to imagine a bunch of us, let's just scale down the expectation. Let's say there's three of us. Maybe we can handle this on a, on a, with three people, okay? And that each of us are then looking out for the interest and the good of the other and not themselves. Who's the doormat in that equation? Well, there isn't one, right? Because the whole point is we're doing it for each other. If we're doing it for each other, then there's no one that can be. The second reason is because of what is actually going on when you are being the doormat. You see, let me, if, if this is you and you kind of lean in that direction, I'm about to tell your dirty little secret, and I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, but I want to be kind. Um, here's the thing, and don't check out because this, this is really true. Those of us who struggle with this actually get something from it, right? See, those of us who, who struggle with this here know that being a doormat might stink, but it also keeps us safe. What? How? Because everyone needs me. And if everyone needs me, because I'm always the one that they call to get, you know, I, I get walked on, then, then if everyone needs me, then, then they'll stay with me. It keeps us safe. It gives us a status because, man, we can play the martyr so easily, can't we? I go, I'm, oh, I mean, I'd love to, you know, go out tonight, but I can't because I've got to do this for this person, this for this person, this for this person. It's just, it's just a hard season right now. And it satisfies us. Boy, does it satisfy us because we get to be the one that people call when they need things. Paul is saying that a Christian community is supposed, is supposed to look like a bunch of people giving up their supposed rights to care each for the other. In other words, I'm not here to, to, to be trampled upon to meet every possible want and desire of someone else. I'm here to seek out their good, their flourishing. And that sometimes means, yes, 
doing things that they want, and sometimes it doesn't, right? It's, it's, he's ta- calling a group of people to be united and thinking about others more than we think about ourselves. And when we do this, no one is a doormat because no one is, is, uh, because everyone is placing others above themselves. And Paul says, this is what a Christian community, this is what a church is supposed to look like. And if that's like, well, Rick, I've never seen that before. I've been in the church my whole life. I know, I know. And that's some of why we're doing this, Okay. Now, the why and the how that that happens comes down to the story of Jesus as the model and means. Okay, so look down at verses 5 to 8. Now, I said this before, but scholars, New Testament scholars will tell you that most of them, the vast majority of them believe that this was what he's about to recite, these, these verses, are a song. Maybe Paul wrote it, maybe he's quoting it, doesn't really matter. The point is, it has a very lyrical sense to it in the original. I know it wouldn't necessarily make great music to us in English, but you'll have to just trust me on that one. Okay, so let's, let's look down there. Paul says, have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who, though existing in the form of God, didn't see equality with God something to be grasped. Okay, now, before I move on, let me explain what that means. That word form is very important, okay? Now, I'm a child of the 80s. I remember the Wonder Twins, and they went into the form of things all the time, but that's not what he's talking about, okay? Um, the in, to us, to say something is in the form of something else means that on the outside it looks like it, right? To take the form of a bucket would be to somehow look like a bucket, but that is not what it means in the original language that it was written in. In the original language that, was, that the Bible was written in or the New Testament was written in, that word form means that it has qualities to it that are essential to that thing. So in other words, when it says that Jesus Though, though he was in the form of God, what it doesn't mean is that he just kind of looked like God. He just kind of like, yeah, it, no, it, he had the essential qualities of what it meant to be God. In other words, he is God. Okay? Now, this is really important because of what comes next. Because when we think about God, we think about God as the all-powerful one, right? And the all-powerful one, the way that we would think about that, the way would we would use that is a certain way. And that way looks nothing like what comes next. Right? We think that with more power comes getting what we want. Right? Right? I mean, that is what we think, right? And so if we have more power, I can do what I want. But that's not what Paul explains here. So though he was essentially fully God, though Jesus is fully God, says he doesn't see equality, something to be grasped, okay? Now, that is a very particular phrase that Paul is using that would have pointed people that read it the first time, their eyes back to a different story, a story at the beginning of the Bible, a story in the garden. Because in the garden, right, the, our, Adam and Eve, first humans, they're in the garden and they're, they, what, are, what is going on there? Well, Adam is in the image of God, but he wants more. And that's what broke him in the first place, right? That's what broke us. He wants to be equal to God. Here, Jesus is actually doing the opposite. He is God, but he's not seeing that as something to be what Paul says, grasped. And when we see grasped, we think grabbed, right? That makes sense. The word actually communicates more of using something for your benefit. In other words, what it's saying is that though Jesus was God, not look like it, not kind of like it, not how to, he was God. He didn't see his godness 
as something to use for him. In other words, he didn't see his power, his glory, and all these things as something to exploit for his own benefit. Instead, he took the form of a servant. Right? Again, same word, essentialness. He, he became a servant. It says that he emptied himself. Now, when it says that he emptied himself, that doesn't mean that Jesus left behind his godness. That's an ancient church heresy. Uh, that is not what that means. Okay? God the Son did not somehow cease being that when he took on flesh. To, to, to say empty means to pour yourself out. In other words, I, Jesus did not see his godness as something to exploit for him. Instead, he poured out all of his godness to serve others. Everything that was about him, he used it not for himself, but by others. And he did that by becoming obedient to death. In fact, he says, not just obedient to death, but even death on a cross. And here's what that means. For us, I, I think we get that today, right? Like there's death, and then there's like, there's death. There's like, yeah, I mean, you know, drops dead. That's bad. And then there's like the bad way to die. And we all know. We, we all kind of get that. That's what, that's what he means. Not only did God the Son die, that would have been pretty amazing in and of itself. Not only did he die, but he took the most painful and humiliating kind of death possible in the Roman world. In other words, he used all of his godness to do this. To take upon himself death in our place for our sins. So, Paul is telling his folks, listen, if you're a Christian, if you've experienced all of this stuff, I need you to be united in this attitude. Be like Jesus, who took all of his power, all of his privilege, all of his prerogatives, all of, ev all of his preferences, and he used all of that for the good other people instead of himself. Now, that's unexpected enough, but this story doesn't end there, and neither does the song. Look down at verses 9 to 11 as he goes from low to high. Paul says, therefore, I got that from Steve this morning. What's the therefore, therefore, right? We got that. What comes next is predicated on what came before. So therefore, because he did all that, Paul says, because he used all of his godness for us, God highly exalted him. And, and what Paul's doing there is he's using this like superlative. He kind of super exalted him. He raised him up. But with the uber on front of it, like really raised him up. So that, Paul said, so that every, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess, and which, by the way, is what the Old Testament always said about God, right? So that, it, it, in other words, Paul's basically saying that though the world is going to think one thing, the world is going to think that there is no way that anyone who is God, God would never do this. We hear this today, by the way. There are some very uh, major world religions that have, a, have an issue with how we understand the deity of Jesus because they're like, that is not the way God would work. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, yes, the world is going to think there's no way that this could be God, but the Father is going to raise up Jesus and highly exalt him so that everyone will see that is exactly what God is like. It's not what I thought. It's, it's this. It's this. Now, follow me for a second. The point Paul is making is this. We think that exaltation comes because we use our power 
our rights and our agendas for us, right? Listen, I know most of us don't think in terms of that individually. And the danger of stepping in a minefield. Maybe, we, maybe it would be easier for us to understand how this works if we thought about it politically. That when we gather with uh, our tribe and we exert our political power and our political influence and we do that for the sake of our political power and our political influence, we do this. It's a human thing. This is why we chase money. This is why we chase power. This is why we chase success and acceptance from others. And Paul is saying, of course, that's a human thing. You don't understand. I get it. We were not in, the, not in the form of God. We were not God, but wanted to be. We reach up and we try and use everything that we have to try and get more. And Paul's saying, but God shows us that that's not the way true exaltation happens. It happens by using everything at your disposal, not for yourself, but for others, because that is what it means to be like God. Jesus is God and used it, used his godness to save others. And because of that, he was highly exalted by God and shown as God to the world. This is what Paul is calling us to do. You see that? You're like, Rick, you haven't even started talking about leaders yet. I know, I will, but just stay with me. He says, this is what he meant. This is what Paul meant when he said, count others as better than yourself. This is what he meant by saying, don't look out for your interests, look out for the interests of others. And he's saying, just like Jesus did. Use everything that is in you, every privilege, every preference, every prerogative, everything to seek out the good of others, not you. Jesus would have said it this way. If you want to be the greatest, you're going to have to be the least. If you want to be the leader, you're going to have to be the servant. Because that's the way this works. It's about taking up the life of Jesus who didn't exploit his rights, his power, or insist on his agenda, but instead, because he was God, gave himself for others, following the will of the Father for the flourishing of others. Okay? All right, there's the passage. Now, I'd like to speak in a more applied manner if I can, okay? Just bear with me for a few minutes. This passage is about the Christian life in general, right? But I think it speaks, it speaks very well to what it means to reimagine leadership, right? So what does this have to do with that? Well, let's, let's flesh out some principles, shall we? So first thing, when it comes to leadership in the church, this passage tells us that Christian leadership is about responsibility, not about privilege. It's about responsibility, not about privilege. One of the most beautiful aspects of this passage in the Christian understanding of um, the incarnation, right, God becoming flesh in Jesus, is that Jesus laid aside his glory and his perfect fullness to accept responsibility for us. He didn't bark orders from heaven, sitting on the throne going, okay, hey, y'all, we got to do this now. You're going to go do this, you're going to do this, we're going to get this done. He came down, laid aside his preferences, prerogatives, and his pride for the sake of others. It's about responsibility, not about privilege. Second, Christian leadership sees authority and power being used for those that are being led. Okay, do you see that? It's Paul's whole point. Jesus, because he was God, 
And listen, I should, I should point that out. I think I skipped over that little aspect of my notes. So let's back up for a second. Reverse. Um, right? Verse 6. Our translations say, who though he was in the form of God. Again, you can translate it though, but it can also be translated because. And in fact, it fits better with the rest of the passage if you translate it that way. The issue is not Paul going, you know, though he was God, he did all of these things that, don't, that, that aren't very God-like. No, no, no. Paul is saying, it's because he was God that he did these things. Because that is what God is like. All right, fast. Right, we're back. All right. Paul's whole point is that Jesus, because he was God, didn't use his godness for him, but instead poured it out for the sake of others. Listen, leaders, if you're a leader in the church, and, and listen, uh, almost, almost everyone in this room is a leader, whether you think you are or not. We all lead somebody, okay? So listen, leaders have power. We do. You do. There's nothing wrong with that. The question isn't, do you have it? That's not the problem. The issue is, the question is, who is that power for? Is it for you? Because you know, I get my way, right? That's what we think. I get the position. I've worked hard for it. Now that I'm in the position, that means I finally get to say how things go around here. That won't last long. I'll tell you that. Maybe I won't last long if that's my attitude. I'll tell you that. The issue is who it's for. Leading like Jesus means that you take all that you have, all the gifts, all the authority, all the resources, and seeing all of it as being for people not named you. Not named you. And that will mean giving up what you like or even what you want at times so that others can flourish. Notice I said flourish, and that's going to bring us to the next point. Third, Christian leadership is about seeking people's flourishing, not their happiness or their approval. Paul makes a point of saying that Christians are called to seek the interests of others and not of themselves. Interests does not mean seeking what interests you. <laughs> it's not like he's talking about what you find interesting. He's talking about your flourishing, what's in someone else's best interests, right? What is going to help them flourish, when leaders see, uh, simply seek to uh, make people happy, garner their approval, it looks on the outside like they're leading for them. They are not. And if that's you, I hate to, I hate to break it to you. You are not leading for them. Let me put it this way. If you come across a starving person, and that starving person has in front of them a plate, and on that plate is a bunch of pieces of broken glass. And they are hungry. And they are going to eat. Their happiness or their approval would mean letting them do what they want. But that will not flourish them. It will kill them. Oftentimes we, as if you're, if you're in leadership at all, like what, what you end up trying to do is you end up trying to get people's approval and happiness because you care about you. I don't want, I don't want, the, I don't want the emails. I don't want the voicemails. I don't want the angry grams. 
I want everyone to think that everything I do is art. I do. So therefore, you know what? Let's just keep them happy. Let's just make them think we're great. In other words, leaders are seeking to make people happy and to gain their approval to make their lives, the leaders' lives, easier and better. Listen, Jesus did not come to affirm us. He came to save us. And there are many times where leaders will have to make a decision that is not what someone they are leading would make, but it is what it is. It has to be that because they are more interested in that person's flourishing than in their comfort. And listen, this is why what we talked about last week matters so much. This is attitudes, but this is why what we talked about last week matters so much. How do you, how do you, how do I, how do we lay our lives in the hands of another person? In this case, okay, let's just, let's just pretend that we can cordon off our lives into different sections. We'll just call it our spiritual life, right? How do you lay your spiritual life in the hands of someone who might make decisions that won't make you happy, that might do things that you don't approve of? How do you do that? Because the only way to do that is if you trust that that is a person of character who is seeking to live out this model. But how do you do that? See, here's the important thing. What Paul is talking about here is not seeking your own good by seeking the good of others. That would be nice. That's kind of like John Nash in A Beautiful Mind. They say, no, the blondes, they could all get a girl. Like that's, we're going to seek my good and their good at the same time. We're going to do all that. But that's not, that's just rearranging the deck chairs, right? This is being willing to lay it all down so that others under your care will flourish. How can you do that? If you're already in leadership, how? Like how do you, how do you do that? If you're an elder, you're a deacon, you're a group leader, you're a ministry leader of some kind, how do you go into what you were doing not just pushing your agenda, not just advocating for your preferences, not just seeking your glory? If you aspire to leadership in any way, shape, or form, like, where do you even begin? See, the the only place in both of these cases, the only way to lay all of this down for others is if you are convinced that someone has already laid all of that down for you. The fuel has to be the gospel. Listen, if you're someone that wants to be admired, respected, looked to, I get it. Me too. Me too. But if that is your goal, then you will never be free to lead someone in a way that jeopardizes that. No matter what those you lead need, the only hope is the gospel truth that Jesus has already given you the status that you were made for. Already. And nothing can take that from you. If if you're someone who who likes uh, power because it keeps you safe from relational harm, right? Gives you a little bit of distance. I'm in control. I'm in charge. You know, I I can't, they, they might be able to leave but they can't do anything to me. I get it. Me too. I like that too. But if that is your goal, you will never be free to lead out of your own brokenness because it might jeopardize your position. You'll never be able to tell the truth about yourself because it might jeopardize your position. The only hope is the gospel truth that you were secure in Jesus because of his work and not yours, and so there's nothing that can take that from you. 
And if you're like someone who, if you're someone who likes the, the privileges of being in power, right? Having position. You like those privileges because it helps you to seek your own satisfaction. I get it. Me too. But if that is your goal, you will never be free to seek the flourishing of those in your care because you will be too busy satisfying yourself. Too busy finding rest for your own restlessness. The only hope is the gospel truth that what you actually crave is the rest for your soul that comes because you've been restored for the one that you've been made for. Listen, if you, if you just try to be better, right, it's going to fail. It's going to fail because you've never addressed the reason that you do what you do. But if you return again to the theme of this song, right, because this song ultimately is for us to go, go, go live this, but the theme of it, the, the core of it, is what has been done for you and for me. It's what God has done for you and for me. And if, if we return again to that theme, if we imbibe it and live it and know it and, and we eat, drink, sleep, breathe that truth, that the reason why, and who, why we are who we are and the reason why we are in the place we are at, the reason why we are restored to the God that we're restored to is because God who though and because he was glorious beyond all imagining, used all of that to come for you, to seek us, to restore us to himself. If you return again to the theme of that song, if you know it, you love it, you trust in it, only then can you improvise it in your life. And Lord willing, in the lives of those that you might lead. Would you pray with me? Lord, have mercy on us because the reality is, is that this model, this, this mindset, this attitude that we've talked about here, the reason why it sounds so ridiculous is because we've rarely, if ever, seen it. And unfortunately, the very people who maybe should have been able to model it the most those that you've called to lead in your church have done such a terrible job. We have done such a terrible job of improvising this song into our lives. So Lord, we ask for mercy. We ask for your grace and we ask for the power of the Spirit to change us. All of us. Would you form UPC into a church that images this? Where we are free to lay down our pride, our privileges, and our prerogatives for the sake of others, for the sake of one another. And as we do that, Lord, we ask that you'd lift up Jesus and exalt him, that the world might see that that is what you are truly like. And we ask it in Christ's name.